0: Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Last
1: week, we uh, looked at Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and we looked at it under the heading Church on Purpose. When I I began planning my, my sermons the last year, my preaching for this year, last year, uh, some of you don't know I do that, but I plan everything in advance because I don't like to be caught off guard on Monday morning. Uh, what am I going to preach? What am I going to preach? And so, uh, and, and I believe that God is a God, of, uh, a God of order and not a God of confusion, and God of chaos. Uh, so, uh, and I believe God, the Spirit inspires all that. But I was going to look at Acts chapter 1 through 2 and kind of look at the early church and look at the day of Pentecost and how that happened. But then I got to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And I said, I just can't pass over this. I've got to deal with. With this passage. And so God led me to look at this with a new set of eyes, and I saw within it hidden the five purposes of the church. Now, I told you last week, it's not systematically revealed one, two, three, four, five. They're interwoven throughout the passage. And last week, we looked at the purpose of worship. We said a church on purpose is a church that worships. And we said that worship has as its meaning exalting Christ. Lifting up our Lord and Savior. It has everything to do with God and nothing to do with us whatsoever. We are here today to worship God. Period. That's it. We're here to do that. However, there's more to church than just gathering together on a Sunday morning or whatever. And coming together for one hour a week to worship the Lord. The early church understood this. The early church grasped this truth. And so we see in them that they made a commitment to other things. They made a commitment to discipleship they made a commitment to the study of God's Word they understood that there was more to the Christianity than just worship of our Lord and Savior so this morning we'll continue in this series on church on purpose by looking at Acts chapter 2 42 through 47 once again and we'll read it and pull out some new truths and we'll look at this passage this morning under the heading discipleship with purpose. And what we will discover is that discipleship was an integral part of the early church. It was a part of the DNA of the early church. Now, here's my philosophy. It's pretty simple. If it was the DNA of the early church, then it should be the DNA of our church because we are a descendant of that early church. And so, if it's good enough for them, it ought to be good enough for us is the way I looked at it. So, let's look at this passage again. Acts 2, 42-47. They talk about the early believers, those new believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily (coughs) those who were being saved. You know what's interesting? I've been fighting something for about four weeks now, and I was really feeling pretty good this week until about 9.15. No, about 8.15. And all of a sudden, the rashness came back, the coughing came back, and uh, so that's why I have the water. So if I get to losing my voice, Josh has more than willingly agreed to step in and take my place. Uh, no, he didn't know that. You know. No. Well, we're gonna get through it with God's help, all right? So <clears throat> if you see me coughing and stuff, that's what I'm from. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Once again, we see that word devoted. There was intensity. Uh, there was continuity. There was faithfulness to that. And we saw last week that they devoted Themselves. Nobody made them do this. This was something they willingly decided upon their own, we are going to do this. They made a decision. If we're going to be all that Jesus wants us to be, if we're going to be the follower that Christ wants us to be, then we have to dedicate ourselves to the study of God's word. We've got to dedicate ourselves to the apostles' teaching. They made a commitment. I was looking at this week in one one of my studies. I said this word devoted, his son's been translated addicted. They were addicted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were teaching it and the people were committed to their teaching. We understand this idea of teaching because it's part of the Great Commission. Remember what the Great Commission says? It says, go, make disciples, baptize them. And it says, and teach them everything I've commanded you. So what we see taking place is a part of the Great Commission. These early disciples, had, they came to be believers of Christ. Now the church is taking upon themselves. We're going to disciple them. We're going to teach them everything that God has taught us, everything that Jesus taught us. That's what the disciples are doing. Now to really understand this passage, you've got to grasp the historical situation. And and, and we we know this, but let me just reiterate it again and again. This is a church that started out with 120 people. And overnight, it's grown to 3,120 people. The first megachurch there ever was. 3,120 people. And all of a sudden, all these people coming in, they had no understanding of the Christian faith. They had no understanding what it means. They came from a religious culture, but they didn't understand about a relationship. They understood rules. They understood regulations. They understood rituals. They understood rights, but they didn't understand a relationship with the Creator. They did not understand a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the early the early disciples saying, "We have to teach them. We have to help them understand this." So to facilitate this growth in these new believers they made a commitment to teaching doctrine now what was this? what was the scripture they taught at that time the only scripture they have is the old testament that's it and i would dare say they probably did not have a copy in the back pocket these were scrolls they didn't have access to this this was fishermen these were tax collectors these were zealots they did not have access to the scripture but they had hid it in their hearts so they might not sin against God. So they knew the scripture had been passed down. But what they did know was they knew the story of Jesus. They knew about Jesus because they hung with Jesus. Uh, they socialized with Jesus. They fellowshiped with Jesus. Jesus took them to the Jesus Seminary for three years and trained them in how Jesus articulates the Old Testament. He reveals the Old Testament in himself. And so the the disciples pulled them in there and they taught from the Old Testament, but then they also taught from the story of Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. This is what they taught. So so what was their purpose in this teaching? Why, Why did they do this? Why was discipleship so important to this early church? To really understand it, We go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, in the words of Paul. Go ahead and turn there with me this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. As we look at these words this morning, the apostle Paul is writing his young protege, Timothy, who's in Ephesus. He's a young pastor. And and he's running into some difficulties there. And so Paul's telling him, these are some things you need to know. And he comes to this part of the scripture. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In this passage, we see the two purposes for discipleship. First, discipleship with purpose edifies believers. Discipleship with purpose edifies believers. Look at that verse 16 again. All Scripture. Let's just stop right there. All Scripture. What constitutes all Scripture? What is all Scripture? We already talked about the Old Testament being Scripture. Scripture. We talked about the stories of Jesus, which we would call the Gospels today. We see that was a part of Scripture. Later on, we see that the apostles, Paul and Peter, would say all the writings of the apostles are Scripture. So when we see that phrase, all Scripture, today in the New Testament church, today in the 21st century church, all Scripture means the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything within the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament is Scripture. We ought to teach the Old Testament and we ought to teach the New Testament. We teach all of Scripture. So when you see that phrase, "All Scripture," no, it's talking to today, Old Testament and New Testament. Let's go on. It says, "All Scripture is God breathed." Let's stop right there. What does that mean when it says, "All Scripture is God breathed"? What does it mean to be God-breathed? It means this. It means that God infused life into these words. God literally breathed these words out. These words would not exist if God did not bring them to life. They have their life in God. These are the very words of God because he instills life in them. How did he do it? How did he give that? The writer of Hebrews says that God has spoke to us in various times, in various ways. He used many different ways to communicate to us. There's basically two schools of thought when you hear this idea of God breathe or inspiration. Two schools of thought is that God inspired the writers of the scripture to write down verbatim exactly what he said. In other words, they were just stenographers. God they were just instruments passive instruments in the hand of God but every word written down is exactly the word that God wanted others believe that God didn't inspire every word or well, some places he did but instead he inspired the ideas and the thoughts but he used the various gifts and the talents and the situation and the abilities and the personalities of the of those early believers to communicate the idea, to communicate the thought. But nevertheless, it's still God's words. But he just used their different words. That's why you see different styles of grammar, different styles of writing. Uh, Some did historical evidence. Some did biographical evidence. But it was all used, all done by God. So which one is it? Which one is it? Well, we don't really know. We don't really know. Which one is now? There's theologians smarter than me out there. They think they know, and I say, well, you know, that's fine. Uh, We don't really know. Was it the words, or was it the ideas? To me, this is one of those things. We just be satisfied with what the Bible says, and no more. Just accept it. God spoke it. This is what it says. God did not think it necessary to inform us exactly how he did it. He said, that's not the purpose. He said, the purpose of my word is to build you up. The purpose of my word is to edify you. We may not know how God exactly wrote it down. But listen, but we believe. We believe that the Bible is a divinely inspired word from God. It is truth without any mixture of error whatsoever. Now, some deny that truth. Some deny that the Bible is error-free or inerrant. They say it has errors in it. But they still say that the Bible is authoritative for life. So I'm not smart enough to debate these individuals. So I sat there and said, well, here's what I would say to these guys. I said, If the Bible has error, then the Bible cannot be trusted. Therefore, it cannot be authoritative for your life. Because if the Bible has errors in it, then we resort to rationalism. And rationalism helps me define what is truth and what is right and what is wrong and not God's word. God's word is authoritative. If you don't understand it, that's your problem, not God's. That's the problem. It cannot be authoritative if it has errors in it. It can't be. Because then you call into question God. You see what you're doing? If God's word cannot be trusted, then guess what? God cannot be trusted. And so we resort to being what's morally right, what's authoritative in life. We make the decisions instead of God making decisions. See, when you come at this as as this is inspired, this is inerrant, it's truth without any mixture of error, you say, okay, since this is truth, then how am I going to align my life with the truth of Scripture instead instead of making the Scripture align with my life? This is what we have to understand when we look at this idea. The truth is, It's not his purpose to tell us how it was written. His purpose was to edify us. Look at verse 16 again. All scripture is God breathed and is useful. It's useful, it's beneficial, Uh, it's, it's practical, it's relevant. Notice what it does not say. It does not say all scripture. Remember, Old Testament, New Testament, inspired by God, it's free of any error, it might be useful for you. It could be useful. There's a possibility it might have some use to your life. He goes, No, it is useful. It's relevant. It's practical. It's important for your life. It is in these words that we find the purpose. Look at what he says. All scriptures God breathing and is useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in. Righteousness. There you find the purpose. There you find the reason. It is to build up believers. It is to edify believers. What does it say? He said, first, he says it's good for teaching. When you see that idea of teaching, he's talking about Christian doctrine. It's talking about this idea about the beliefs of the Christian faith, the tenets of the Christian faith. It's talking about Christian doctrine. It edifies us in what we understand. It edifies us in what we believe. It edifies us on how we stand firm in a faith. Second, what's it used for? It's used to refute error and to challenge sinful behavior. You see that word? It says rebuking and, or it says uh, teaching and rebuking. It's correct, it's it's rebuking us. You're wrong in this area. You need to change your ways in this area. It challenges us in what we believe, but it also challenges us in the way we behave. It's, It's useful for teaching, it's useful for rebuking. Third, it teaches us how to stand up right. That's that word uh, correcting. It's like mending something that's broken. Once you've been rebuked and you realize I'm not supposed to walk that way, then the Word of God is used to show you the right way to walk, to mend you in a correct way. And the fourth truth we see in this passage is good for training. Ultimately, that is the purpose of Scripture. It's not to impart information. It's not to give you data. It's not so that you can be data in and no data out. It is supposed to be so it can train you in how to be more like Jesus. That's why he says training in righteousness. The purpose of Scripture is to train you to be more like Jesus, to be more like Christ. That's the purpose of the Scripture, is to transform us, to conform us into the image of Jesus. How do you get to be in the image of Jesus? How do you become transformed by, 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 uh, by the Word of God? By studying the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to permeate your life so that you begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's what he says in this passage. Mature us into the image of Christ. The purpose of scripture is not to pass on information to an individual, but for the transformation of our lives. That's the goal. It's Christ formed in us so that we can be more like Christ. That's not a ritual so that we as a, a, a church can count numbers. We do it every, every Sunday morning. We gather it on every, every Monday morning. We gather in staff hey, what was the numbers in Sunday school? What were the numbers in Sunday? You know why we do that? It's also, oh, look at us. We're doing a good job. Look how many people we have. No, we want to make sure that everybody in the church is being trained. Everybody in the church is being transformed in the image of Christ. And the best way to do that is through discipleship, through Bible study, that we're counting those heads. Not so we can count numbers, but it's a process of training that we submit ourselves to. Why? So that we can be shaped by the Word of God. They devoted themselves they committed themselves. They dedicated themselves. They were addicted to the teaching of God's word. Listen, folks, you don't get that in a 30-minute sermon. I know. You say, you wish I preached 30 minutes. It's more like 35, 38. But I'm going to preach till I get done, all right? So if that's just my pause. If you're sitting there counting your, counting your watch, it just, there's no purpose to you whatsoever. You might as well take it off because I am not going to preach according to the clock. You know, the Bible tells us that Paul preached one time all night long, and a guy was in the window and he fell out and died. Paul went down and woke him up, put him back in the window, and preached more. So if you fall asleep and die in the church, guess what? We're probably just going to keep preaching and we'll get to you later, okay? You're not going to get it in a thirty minute sermon. It's going you're going to get that when you're involved in Bible study with other believers but also in private study at your home when you're sitting there studying Scripture. You ought to become addicted to the Word of God, devoted to the Word of God. This morning, some of you need to commit. Some of you need to commit to the to, to Bible study. Uh, you need to commit to being a part of a small group where you can study the Bible. Some of you need to commit to the daily time of study God's Word. However, you might be surprised how many people aren't committed How many people are not dedicated to the study of God's word? How many people have not devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching of the apostles? Second truth, discipleship with purpose equips believers. Look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Normally what we do, we use verse 16 to defend the inspiration of Scripture. To say, this is what Scripture is all about. We use that, you know, it's, it's, it's God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for these things. But then we gloss over verse 17. And we don't really dwell on verse 17. That's one of the errors that we run into the church. We're very high on a view of Scripture, but we forget verse 17. Verse 17 is pivotal to understanding the purpose of God's Word. Notice what it says. So that... Okay, you know where I'm going with this. Every time you see that word, so that, you need to sow that thought into your mind because this is pivotal to understanding. What Paul is saying to Timothy, he said, Timothy, here's the reason that we have this inspired word of God that's good for teaching, that's good for rebuking, that's good for correcting, and that's good for training. We do it so that... So that we can accomplish certain things. So that it will do its purpose. So we get taught. We get rebuked. We get corrected. And we get trained. Why? He says so that we can be equipped for every good work. That's what he's saying in God's word. It's not enough to sit in a Bible study and soak up information. You have to to apply the Word of God to real-life situations. How does this affect your life? That's when the Word of God becomes alive. Other than that, it's just information. It's data in, but no data going out. Nothing whatsoever. Now, I believe the Word of God and it equips us for two specific things. First, it equips us against false doctrine. It equips us against false doctrine. There's a lot of teaching going on out there that can I just tell you it's it's just a bunch of malarkey it's not the truth it's not the gospel it's not the word of God but most of us do not know how to refute it we do not know how to challenge false doctrine we do not know how to challenge false teaching there's a lot of it out there and we need to know how to do this a matter of fact in a few months or in about a month we have a special class coming up. Let me show you this video. we got a video, a little highlight here for,
0: the, for you. Let's see if we can watch this. Okay. Um, why secret church? Whenever we think of church in America, we most often think of going to meet at a building, singing, praying, hearing a message from a pastor. But in many places around the world, church meets in a home or an apartment, sometimes even in secret. And many times there are just a few believers in that area who know and follow Christ. They face all kinds of challenges and difficulties in meeting together. Some places may be dangerous. So When they come together, they want to make the most of their time in a way that maybe is different than what you and I are often used to. Yeah. Secret Church is our version of a gathering then where we meet for an intense time of Bible study prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution. Secret Church is not for the uncommitted or the faint at heart, but if you want to know God more deeply through His Word and know His church more fully around the world, then Secret Church is designed for you. It's not just to come and learn for one night and kind of have an event, but The goal is to pray together, to study the word together, and then to use what we've learned during that gathering to make disciples of Jesus more faithfully right where we live and then wherever God may lead us around the world, maybe even to places where it's difficult and dangerous to share the gospel.
1: cults and counterfeit gospels. That's what secret church be studying. in intense 6 hours of training and we are offering this to you. Come to the church. It's, it'll be advertised. You see the posters out. You need to be part of that. You understand what God's word says from Genesis to Revelation about cults and counterfeit gospels. Why do we give you that? Because we want you to be equipped. We want you to be equipped. We want you to be firm in what you believe so that you can stand up against these false doctors. Most of us cringe in fear when somebody knocks on our door. I remember when I was living in Illinois, I lived in the in, in Parsi, you know, a little separated but in the church. And people are always coming by our church asking for help and stuff like that. But this one time I met some ladies out in my circular driveway, so I just asked them what was going on. Lo and behold, they turned out to be Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> they did not know what they were doing. Um... So I, I, I discussed with them, you know, I, I let them tell me their story. Then I told them my story, about 20 minutes. And Basically, what we came down to the very end, and, and, and probably I wouldn't recommend this to you, but, you know, I was kind of uh, in a hurry. And I said, well, basically, you have a misunderstanding of Jesus. And until you get the understanding of Jesus right, you're wrong. Because, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses believe, believe that, that that passage that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God was, was a God. A God. That one little article, A, changes everything. You see, it actually says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But adding that little A was a God. They relegate Jesus to not being God. So therefore, listen, everything else they say does not matter. Does not matter. If they don't get it right about Jesus, everything else will be thrown out. That's why we want to offer this to you. Cults and counterfeit gospels. Ten bucks is all it's going to cost you. If you can't afford ten dollars, you come see me and I'll pay your way. Surely we can afford ten bucks. That's two. That's you know, four visits to Starbucks. That's two dollars and eighteen cents for a, a grande. So I think you can afford it. You know, if you want to go, if you splurge, you get one of those fru-fru coffees. It's like four fifty. I said, you know. So you, you got the point. It's to equip us. It's to equip us. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15 says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I thought about that passage just, just this morning. I just thought about it. I said to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I imagine it's kind of like this. The king is looking for some people to build something. He's looking for some some people that are skilled in certain activities, certain things. And so they appear before the king, and here comes this individual. He says, he's skilled in carpentry. He's skilled in in curtain making, or he's skilled in this. And he's he's got proof that he can do it. And all of a sudden, this person comes up, and it says that he's presenting himself to God as one who's not ashamed of the word, he knows what it means, and he can stand before God and present himself to God based upon the credentials that he has in his life. I'm not trying to be a heretic there. None of us stand before God in our own power. I understand that. But when you look at it in that context, do your best. You're presenting yourself to God. Say, God, I want you to know I have stood for your word. I have been faithful. I have challenged it. And, Lord, I have stood firm in what you believe. And I'm presenting myself to you as one whose life is tes- gives testimony to what they believe. I'm skilled. Don't be ashamed. Do your best. To present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that we are equipped. We are to devote ourselves to the study of God's word. But that's not the only reason. It's not just to protect us from false doctrines. Second, it's so we can do good works. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Paul, once again, he's writing to the church at Colossae. Paul says this, We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that, there's that so that, but this time it's in order that, we pray that so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. How so? Bearing fruit in every good work in other words Paul is saying the reason we study to know God's will the reason we're experiencing God's will the reason we're experiencing God is so that we can do good works what a novel idea wow I don't know why I didn't think of this before you mean we actually study the word of God to apply it to our life and live it out before others wow why did I think of that What a novel idea. We are actually supposed to study his book so that it impacts our lives and the way we live. It's not there just to fill our heads with knowledge. It's so that as we study God's word and as we do, guess what? We'll be people who not only honor the book, but we will be people who live by the book. I face some ridicule. So did Jesus. You're in pretty good company. We must determine to live according to the Bible. Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling the believers in Ephesus, and he's telling you and me, not just to have a high view of the book, but we ought to live by the book. Do you believe that this is the inspired word of God? Because if you do, then it better impact your life. Because if you reject this, you're rejecting the words of God. That's a high view of scripture. You know, look, I know there are people out there smarter than me, and they say, oh, but the the, the scripture in the original autographs is what's inspired. Well, I haven't seen them. I couldn't read them if I could. But you mean to tell me that God who created the universe in Genesis 1-1 is not more than capable to give us the exact word he wants us to have today? You don't have a scripture problem. You've got a God problem. My God is bigger than that. And he is not going to put something in our hand that's going to confuse us. Confusion comes from the devil. It doesn't come from God. And he's been challenging the word of God since Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Did he really say that? And what do we say? Did, today, in the 21st century, people say, does God really say that about that?
0: Yeah, he does.
1: He does. He does. But if you don't know it, you can't refute it. And so you just believe it, and you go about your business. You know how Mormons, the number one growth of the Mormon church is from Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. Because we do not believe what we say we believe. We do not live by it. But I'm meddling in your life, and I realize that, so excuse me. Some of you know the movie, Mutant on the Bounty. It was actually a true story, but you know the movie, I don't know, I I think. And the one that, I know there's one a long time ago, Charles Lawton played in it. Uh, You old-timers, know who I'm talking about. But the one I'm more familiar with was uh, Mel Gibson as Fletcher Christian. Christian, And then I think, uh, oh, I know who it is. Anyway, uh, he played uh, uh, William Bly. Anyway, the story is about William Bly was a captain in 1787, and he was taking a crew to Tahiti. And, uh, and so he enlisted the men. These men thought this would be paradise. They're going to go to Tahiti and they're going to live in Tahiti. So he enlisted Fletcher Christian, who was his right-hand man. He was the second-in-command of the ship. And so they went to Tahiti, and they stayed there for six months. And then Captain Bly put them out to sea, and, and the people didn't want to go to sea. So they, they staged what became known as the Mutiny on the Bounty. And, and Fletcher Christian and, and it took control of the ship and they put, they put Captain Bly and they put him and, and a few of his men in, in, a, in a lifeboat that was overcrowded and set them to sea. And Fletcher Christian took the men and all the mutineers and they went back to Tahiti. And they went to Tahiti and he left some of the mutineers there in Tahiti. But he gathered together some women and some slaves and one little girl and they, they sailed 1,000 miles away to an island called Pitcairn Island. And they went there. That was on April the 28th of 1789. They made their way to Pickering Island. When they got there, uh, they uh, invented a whiskey, and they started getting drunk, and there were brawls taking place, and eventually everybody died except for one man. His name was John Adams, a.k.a. Alexander Smith. And he was the only one that was alive. And he found himself on an island with, a, with some slaves and some, some children, and some women. And he made an interesting discovery. He went back on, to the, on, the, on the bounty, and he, on the, he went into the, the stuff of the US HMS bounty, and he discovered the Bible, the ship's Bible. And so he began reading the Bible. And then he began instructing the people there about the Bible. And a transformation took place on that island. In 1808, 20 years later, 19 years later, Uh, The USS Topaz, which was a whaling ship, landed at Picturn Island. And what they discovered was everybody was living in prosperity. Everybody was living in peace. They were free from crime. They were free from disease. They were free from murder. And they were free from mutiny. What made the difference? God's Word had always been there. It had always been there. What happened is they began to take the Word of God, apply it to their lives... And it transformed their culture. It transformed them. Today, there's 50 people that live on the island. Every one of them are believers. And they all trace their ancestry back to these individuals. As I tell you, what was true for them can be true for us. It's not enough just to memorize a bunch of scripture. You must make it a part of your daily, everyday living. Let me ask you a couple questions. What is God asking you to do this morning? In light of what you've heard, what is God asking you to do? Perhaps he's using his word to get your attention. Perhaps for some of you, God is saying you need to stop doing something you're doing. for others God is saying you need to start doing something you're not doing. And really it just comes down to you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be like the early disciples and devote yourself to the apostles teaching? Are you? Can I be so bold as to say this that if you do not do that you're already in disobedience to the Word of God. So why would we expect you to be obedient anywhere else? If you can't get that one right, everything else flows from that. Maybe for some of you, God is leading you to be a part of a fellowship of believers that we believe the Word of God And we try to live by it the best we can. I know that, hey, I'll be the first to confess, I mess up every day, okay? I'm I'm just here to tell you, I mess up every day. Uh, I think I messed up last night, okay? I I probably did, you know. I probably thought something I shouldn't have thought, probably did something I shouldn't have did, said something I shouldn't have said, you know. I actually got frustrated with my son-in-law last night. Can you believe that? Not my daughter, my (laughs) son-in-law. No, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. What are you going to do? For some of you, and I know almost everyone in here, but maybe you, you say, I need a church home. <clears throat> I need a place where I can be involved in the study of God's Word for the transformation of my life. We offer numerous Bible studies here. We have Bible studies from the babies all the way to uh, Mary Willis's department. Uh, I, can't, it's the, the, like, I call it the glory class. She's worried because all about everybody in her class is dying. I said, yeah, but they're going to a great place. There's only one place to go after Mary's class, all right? And you should not fear that, folks. You should not fear that. Uh, It it will be great. It will be a time of rejoicing. Uh, I mean, if if you want to create a class above that, we'll do it. If it'll make you feel better. Uh, But the point is, we have a class for everyone. We have classes to meet during the week. We have Bible study on Wednesday nights. We have Bible study, well, for college and young adults, Tuesday nights at my house. We have a Bible study that meets Wednesday night for, for those that want a, a little bit more Bible study. Other than mine, we have another Bible study. We have a Bible study going on on, I think, Wednesday mornings with the Daniel group, uh, their study. We, we have all kinds of stuff going on, and we'll start more. Or here's a novel idea. I want you to say, Pastor, I would like to start a Bible study on Thursday nights in my house. Here's what I'm thinking. We want to help you be all that you can be in Christ. Whatever decision you need to make this morning, we're going to invite you to come. Maybe it's to be a part of this church. Maybe it's to commit yourself to Bible study. Maybe for some of you, you say, I just need Jesus. You know, I am not going to get this stuff right until I get right Jesus. We didn't really talk a lot about the gospel today as far as how you can be saved. But if you come forward and say, I would like to know how to receive Jesus, we'll tell you how to do it, okay? Uh, Josh is more than capable. I'm more than capable. Marcy's more than capable of just explaining to you the, uh, the simple truth of John three sixteen and all the other verses that go with it. We can help you do that. Whatever decision you make, we're going to invite you to come. Ricky's going to come and lead us. Josh and Marcy are going to make their ways down. As we stand together, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing, Lord, that In and of ourselves, we are insufficient. Lord, we cannot accomplish what you would have us accomplish in our own power and our own strength. Father, we do not even have the capacity to understand if you do not enlighten us, if you do not teach us. But Father, we also recognize that, Lord, we need to make ourselves available so that you can indeed teach us. Father, for that we ask your forgiveness. Father, when the world presses in on us and society tries to dictate us what we ought to do and how we ought to, uh, to devote our time, Father, we pray that you would protect us and, Father, that you would forgive us for the error of our ways. Father, we truly do want to be a group who devote ourselves to the teaching of your word. Old and New Testament. And, Father, the application of that truth in our lives. Bless this time of invitation this morning, Father. Communicate to people. The truth. Of your word. Touch hearts. What's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.